Hello and welcome to another episode of the Eat Weeds podcast. I'm Robin Harford and I'm here today with Tom Hirons. I don't really know how to describe Tom, but I think I'm just going to ask you. I write, I walk around recording myself quite a lot. I write poetry, I tell stories with Hedge Spoken Travelling Storytelling Theatre and where we cross over or where we crossed over to begin with was years ago on a foraging course in Devon. So I'm, I'm a lover of the, the hedgerows and what you can find there, both physically and inspirationally and spiritually. Um, that's quite a long answer, isn't it? So the reason I initially asked you to come on the show is because you wrote a little book called Nettle Eater. So being the Eat Weeds podcast, and it's about a person who lives on the moor, who eats nettles and the encounter. But before we get into this, it's known as a chap book, isn't it? It is. I used to be a bookseller for Waterstone. So we love chat books in the back office and we had loads of them. Before we move on to explore Netlita, just explain what a chat book is, because it's really old fashioned, isn't it? A chat book is basically, I don't know what the, the actual definition is, but when we think of chat books, it's basically a kind of folded, a folded book, like a pamphlet that's either stapled or sewn. A really simple thing. And the idea, I think, is that they're easily made and kind of ease, just kind of little slivers of magic that can be kind of passed around. And they've got something a bit subversive about them in their history, I think. Little manifestos and bits of propaganda and agitprop that have been passed from hand to hand, stuck in pockets and stuff. And the chapbooks, one of the appeals of them for us, being a, a small press, is that they're pocket size and people can slip them into their coat and forget about them and find them in a bag or slip them into someone's bookcase without them noticing because it's just this little pamphlet thing they they're beautifully they're beautifully done but we'll we can get onto that maybe i'm fascinated by language to communicate the feelings we experience within wild spaces places etc nature stephen harrod booner who is the great kind of plant teacher in america wrote quirkily completely out of his niche a book called insoling language and in it he says that the purpose of language and writing is to elicit a feeling response mm. so when i read this netleater book i got pulled into quite an odd space Good. It absolutely elicited a feeling response. Now, I'm hypervisual. So most books, fiction, etc., stories, actually don't do it for me mm -hmm. unless the writer can pull me into their dream and I can feel that world around, literally like around me. This did it, you. Mm -hmm. This genuinely has magic in the words well bless you what is this about i think 
the answer I'm interested in talking about is what Netalita is. It is an account, a first person account of someone going to live on Dartmoor for a year, eating only nettles and that giving in to this call of the wild moor. And I love to hear that it evoked this feeling response in you because as far as I'm concerned with my writing, I don't think that the feeling response is the only thing that, that is interesting about writing. I think there are other things to do with writing as well. But there is a particular place that I was wanting to take the reader to with Natalita which is in some way uh, a little part of the madness or regained wild sanity of the main character who does go quite far out <laughs> on the scale of the other end of from conventional sanity and really delves deep into the the mystery of being and what wildness is and surrendering to his own perplexing nature and so I write spells that's basically what I do and some of them work and some of them don't work I've always loved Netalita as you know of the various bits of writing that I've done I've always had a real soft spot for it partly because I just love how totally nuts the main character is the first person um but also it arose out of an inquiry really between my partner Rima and me about whether it was possible to live wild on Dartmoor and this was written originally about oh god almost 10 years ago eight years ago something like that quite a long time ago now when we were camping wild on Dartmoor we used to head out onto the moor quite a lot before we had kids and we'd take a, a for some reason we would end up taking a vast amount of cast iron with us <laughs> as you do if you love kind of yog irons and dutch ovens and yeah. all that kind of stuff so we're tracing across the moor through the squelching mud to carry <laughs> 200 kilos of cast iron but we would quite often have these conversations about would it be possible to live out here could we do it or how could what would we need to do in order to go completely feral on Dartmoor and it always came down to when would they notice that we were eating the horses it I was a time getting assaulted now <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be absolutely no big. no horses were harmed at any point <laughs> whatsoever it was a thought experiment yeah. but it was interesting because at that time it was a time when we were getting involved with dark mountain so for listeners who don't know, they were still are a project really looking at creative responses to the end of civilization as we know it in its current form and what we do with that. So that was kind of about 10 years ago, they were, they were doing that kind of work of really getting into the grief work around climate collapse and wider than climate collapse as well, just the madness of everything. We were really thinking about how, how do we live? How can we live? sanely in response to all of the, the madness that's going on and that led us onto the moor where we we had just started living on the edge of and this inquiry of how can we how could you live wild on the moor met this story from tibet the story of milarepa the beloved saint of tibet who was a very bad bad man and used his magic very badly and murdered one or two people 
I can't remember how many it was, but then became good by spending seven years, I think it was, eating nettles and living in a cave. And he turned green and learned to fly. And he was very cool. So these two, two streams combined of the, the nature of Melarepa and the crazy wisdom stream that he was part of in Tibetan story and Tibetan religion, spirituality, and this inquiry about what would that look like if it was on Dartmoor and feral, not within any container of organized religion? What if he was just finding out how to do all this through fasting, through eating nettles, through all the crazy practices he undertakes to commune with the spirits and, and himself? We met however long ago, eight years or More, nine years. Most probably. Um, and a lot has happened in that time. But um, when I met you then, I, I was just a few years out of having begun doing kind of wilderness rites of passage, wilderness vigil work. And as part of that process, or that work was part of a wider process, really, of allying myself to the land and really trying to make whatever I do be in service to that. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I'm writing and it's good, which is largely a matter of luck and practice and turning up and doing it, but also a commitment to trying to tell the truth in non ordinary non-linear ways when it works something crackly from the land is coming through into the writing and then in hopefully into the reader if they've got the receptors for it if their ears are open or their eyes are open or their heart or whatever, whatever faculty it is that's required to get crackled by it that's what is going on I think. Yeah. So with Netalita, that that quality is there and that's really why I love it. All that other stuff aside, when it gets down to it, the magic happened and it's in there. There's another piece of writing I did called Sometimes a Wild God, which is another little book, which sells quite well and actually kind of you know pays a substantial part of our rent, which is absurd for a poem. <laughs> But that kind of has dominated at the kind of front of stage for, for quite a while. And Nettleita is getting this, this quiet little following of people who have opened it up often quite innocently and have, the crackle has jumped out and leapt into them. And they know that there's something, a bridge has been made between them and whatever wild thing of nature did manage to make it into that writing. Your work pulls through this kind of immersive quality, which has that, like you say, this crackle. So for people who want to explore their relationship with nature in the, in, in the, in the kind of way that you do, what would you advise they do to get into a state where the feeling or the crackle comes through their words on paper? And it doesn't have to just be words. It could be dance. Mm. It could be painting any creative pursuit that is trying to express the crackle. What's the process for you? 
the the crackle you're talking about the way to get into that creativity how to get that into your creativity there are some ways that i have tried and i don't know which it is that has made the difference but i've got my suspicions so in my life i have i've taken a lot of psilocybin mm-hmm. yeah you yeah. know um in various different contexts and that's something that people have got feelings about one way or another but that certainly i think has has opened some some channels for the crackle not enough in itself i don't think and a lot of what i encountered and learned in in that way of encountering the wild uh, wild nature and the kind of the wild in myself was fleeting passed quite quickly and, and often everything happened too quickly to to be of any lasting value and so about 15 years ago i got involved in this thing called wilderness rites of passage wilderness, the wilderness vigil which is this old form of marking a rite of passage or of going to nature for some kind of sustaining energy which people have done for countless thousands of years in all places across the world and the way i encountered it was through going on a, a little course that this fellow david wendelberry who's based near stroud was running and going out to snowdonia and the experience was centered around a four day solitary fast in the hills where you don't have a tent you don't uh, eat any food you just drink water you don't you don't see anyone and there were all sorts of caveats when we're talking about this kind of stuff before anyone rushes off and does that by themselves in some crazy place in the middle of winter it's a fairly big deal it's kind of not a big deal in many ways but it is also quite a big deal in obvious and non-obvious ways that experience and what happened during that and in subsequent um times of doing that kind of work and then getting involved in taking other people out and doing that that was where i met the part of myself that could write decent stuff in a way or speak decent stuff it was where i made my commitment that i was talking about that kind of marriage to the wild of okay i'm in service to you now so it was kind of like a bodhisattva vow for the wild or something i think that that and lots of practice and a lot of love of language and a bit of luck and yeah we were talking about trickster earlier on um being in touch with a bit of that quicksilver energy those are the kind of ingredients and then going out and spending lots of time walking on the land there's something about walking and language that are just crossed fingers like that and when i'm writing and i'm writing well it's because i'm walking a lot and the pace of my language and the kind of things that start to occur to me they happen when i when i walk on the land you mentioned earlier on that you record yourself a lot so do you mm-hmm. record as you walk is it because what i find i'm totally with you about this this kind of flow that happens that when the body is moving on land and not pavements i don't know whether it's the rhythmic nature of walking that then elicits this kind of 
singing or song in mm -hmm. in how my my brain is composing language but i've recently got into recording outside just for myself just mm. to capture the those moments where that that actually could potentially be quite good the question is when you as we're as we're trying to oh i'm trying to encourage readers to really kind of play with this even if you don't mm -hmm. think think you can write or draw or however you want to explore a creative art form that doesn't matter. It's like morning journaling. I did do that for quite a while. Many years I spent writing, scribbling in journals. I sometimes did it as a daily practice. I never did it you know, religiously as a morning thing. I don't do it anymore. And I think that it's a bit of a red herring, to be honest. I think it's the kind of thing that some people find useful for their well-being. I'm not sure that it's ever really helped anyone write anything better than they would have done otherwise i could be so wrong there about <laughs> as i could be about so many things but that's just my feeling but what i love doing now and it has taken me a long time to get to this you know i'm 47 now and it's only in the last five years that i've really got into this is just noticing the difference between silence and the blank page so if you're recording if, you're, if you've got a little dictaphone or whatever it is, or your, your phone and you can record on that, then you can be out in the world in some place, whether it's some grand place or just some little kind of nook by a tree in the city. And you can be there with your full presence in silence until something comes to say, some words that can be of consequence or no consequence whatsoever. And in the process of speaking them, and getting them recorded on the on the thing you don't have to go away from the world and also you're not faced with those words that you've just put put in um so you're back in into the same place of silence but haven't, haven't said those things with a page you've got a blank page there if you're scribbling in your little notebook hunkered down by a under next to a granite boulder on the moor trying to keep the rain off you look out and you've got this grand vista and you've got all these things coming and this language is starting to move through you you bend down and you scratch in your your you know pen that probably doesn't work very well on the, the paper which is wet and suddenly you're into the mechanics of writing you're in that little rectangle usually of the page and what that blank page says to you and then you've got the, the words that you've written and you look at them and then they don't look how you thought they were going to look when you were thinking them, when they were inside you, when they were on your tongue, they've got a different kind of thing. And then suddenly there they are on the page and maybe you've spelt that bit wrong or the grammar got a bit wrong and you're getting caught up in all kinds of other stuff. And you've gone from the landscape until you put your head up again. So it's this kind of, you look out, you come down, you look up, you come down. And that creates a certain kind of word thing that happens. And it's just different from the recording. And what I love about the recording is that I can just be there and I don't have to go anywhere else. I don't have to come out of the wilds. It's just there recording. And so now I've got stacks and stacks of recordings that I've never listened to, just in the same way that I've got stacks and stacks of notebooks that I've never looked at the, the writing. But they're there, and every so often I transcribe a bit, and it has different different ways about it. So there's there another book I wrote, another chapbook called Falconer's Joy, 
with five poems in it. And all of those poems I worked on through that way of recording myself while I was out and about. And they're designed to be spoken, those poems, not read on the page. And for creative people working with words, we get so hung up on the page and really bollocks to the page. It's about the magic of language happening from me to you and going in to, to your ears and heart and all of that. And when you're speaking, there's no spelling. There's barely any grammar that matters, or it's a very different kind of grammar. And it's much more organic and human, and it's not the world of scholars. And so that's what I love about working that way. I think that's come out of doing a lot more storytelling the last five years, particularly the last 10 years, is really getting into the particular magics of spoken language as opposed to the written word. And I love reading and I love writing. I love typesetting. I'm a publisher as well. I love it all, but it's just the real magic for me is in the, the communication. It, we told stories before the written word. And Long so I before. Go, I went and visited uh, the sea gypsies a few years ago off Thailand wow. called the Mo. Wow have no written language so when i visited there was a there was a, a linguist from one of the universities desperately trying to write down their language phonetically mm. because it's unwritten no written language so when the tsunami happened they knew the tsunami was happening mm. there was no moken died during that tsunami because their stories had told them the signs mm. and that tsunami was a tiny, tiny, tiny little tsunami compared mm. to the ones that they had experienced in their stories of their yeah, forefathers yeah. and foremothers. I love that we are able in this connected world to be able to record because mm. again, to encourage readers Firstly, you have a story just by being a human and a breathing human, and even dead humans have them as well. Everyone has a story. And I encourage people to not write for an audience, to allow your own story to be spoken. And even if, like Tom said, there can be a friction caused by sitting at a blank page but walking land and word tumbling, just stream mm. of consciousness ramblings. Mm. I personally, as a writer, find it incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. wow. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a step or a kind of side branch from that, whereby there are the wilds, wild places and dead people, talking about dead people, they love having stories told to them and poems spoken to them. So I do a lot more of that these days. I got into that actually through storytelling, one of the Dark Mountain festivals. Rima and I we were telling this Russian folktale and the only place we could find to practice was this natural burial ground. And there kind of started this, this little kind of tradition of telling stories to the, to the dead. Um, and it feels actually the healthiest thing I can think of almost as a way of 
connecting with the ancestors and bridging between the, the dead and the living, not necessarily telling folk tales, but telling the news um, or offering poems um, and things like that. So the land and the wild places and the weather in many, many cultures, you tell stories to those things. So there's a story that I used to tell, but don't tell anymore, which came from Chukchi people in Siberia, which is one of my favorite stories. It's absolutely mental. There's this giant tongue that chases people across the landscape. But uh, a giant tongue? A giant tongue, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shoots, <laughs> shoots, out, shoots out of this kind of sorceress's mouth and chases the, okay. the hero. And, and uh, um, anyway, it's, it's an amazing story. It's, it's a kind of story of shamanic initiation and all kinds of stuff. But with that story, essentially, the only time it would be told was when there was a powerful wind that needed calming. It was an incantation to calm the wind. So the, whoever was the powerful storyteller would tell this story to the wind to calm it down because for whatever reason the wind liked that story and once once i'd really thought it through and stopped being an ass and realized that i was doing exactly the kind of cultural appropriation that i hate other people doing yeah. i stopped telling that story and learned from that never to do it again because it i was just being a dick there are those kind of powerful stories in Siberia, in North America, huge, huge traditions of doing that. So speaking to the wild, not just speaking to yourself while you're in the wild, I suppose is what I'm, what I'm getting to, so that you maintain that relationship as being involved and immersed and interwoven into it rather than this little kind of node of individuality moving across the moor or wherever it is. I want to pick up on the cultural appropriation side. I'll go on. Because I, it, it's a massive one for me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm quite tough with people on it, mm -hmm. and I do call them out. Great. Pretty regularly, actually, because it's epidemic. It's not trying to shame people. It's just trying to shine a light on you know, possible concerns that what we often innocently mm -hmm. do, you know, has, has consequences for those cultures. In our longing, our longing for the things of a real culture takes us into, you know, dodgy territory sometimes. For me, if what we've been exploring with getting the crackle, experiencing the crackle where we find our feet, is that not our culture? We don't need to go and nick it from another one. Mm -hmm. That I've always said. So as a contemplative, for me, you know, I'd have I'd I'd have a just I remember having a discussion with some friends and, and they were doing their ceremony ceremonies and rituals and, and whatever the hijinks they were getting up to. And they were using other cultures kind of, you know, an eclectic cobble it all together kind of process and i just put a thought exercise out there i said well what if you just shut up and got out of your own way which is what a contemplative does we you know we we just go into the land and we like you said silent and see what arises that empty cup 
how does mm. it get filled and, and th- so most of the time it never gets filled but occasionally there's a drip in there um, <laughs> <laughs> um and so i i gave them that and i said this is where our culture is our culture is in that f- filling ourselves up and and coming up or with with new stories mm. we've mm. lost our old ones we have a we do have a tradition obviously a culture of stories but y- you know you've got to dig quite deep got fragments really of of that kind of culture and i think i i know where you what you're i think i know what you're what you're saying i partially agree with you because whilst i think that essentially everything worth knowing is still there available for us to know through that contemplative opening an alive culture has existing maps for the processes that we go through in becoming alive and fully human, which can serve us well. So whether those are initiatory maps or um, maps to describe self or or whatever. And I, I do mourn the loss of those and I understand why people reach out to and pillage other traditions to to try and find them there are so many different ways we do that and some of those ways are kind of sanctioned and they're so so called okay and there are other ways which are not sanctioned and those so called not okay as an acupuncturist you know i'm i'm drawing on the traditions of east asian medicine uh, chinese japanese and all all around there but that's okay because permission has been given for those traditions of knowledge and cosmologies to to be used where it becomes obviously a lot less savory is in the kind of british museum approach of just collecting um taking it's theft where it gets more complicated is where there has been partial permission or permission from part of a culture and not permission from another part of a culture. And I'm not quite sure what, what to do with that still after 15 years of thinking about it. And that's, that's something I come up against in the rites of passage work a lot. And one of the reasons I stopped doing it for about 10 years was to try and figure out how I could do it in a way which wasn't essentially ripping off North American Native American traditions. I check in quite regularly with some of the Native American indigenous activism, and they are absolute, or a certain quarter of them are absolutely fucking fuming mm. over what white people are doing. And I interviewed Nicole Rose, who runs Solidarity Apothecary, the other day. There's this word in climate activism and areas called decolonize innovation and she said well the word that actually is is being used is that only really indigenous people can use the word decolonize because they're the ones who've been colonized so she used the word unsettling because we are the settlers or Mm -hmm. were not Mm -hmm. me or you but Mm -hmm. ancestors so again, that's that use of language. Sometimes I get a little bit frustrated with the 
prettiness of of political correctness on the one hand but then mm-hmm. on the other i'm really quite i love the precision of language as well i'm there with that kind of dual relationship to it for me it's kind of like a bellows i think i have to i i get involved in that precision of language and the attempt to speak utterly clearly utter, utterly respectfully with this kind of laser-like incision until there comes a point where it's such a constraining straitjacket that I explode out of it into a kind of wild spray of language that has no care in it in the same kind of way, but ends up being informed by that phase of attempting the precision. So I think that the two can work together. With the writing practices, the way we've talked about how you can possibly get into a more fluid state and present state using audio recording, etc., rather than scratching pencil on paper. So let's take Nettle, as you've written Mm. Nettleater. And what would be your advice if someone wanted to get get the crackle of Nettle? So you've, you've spoken of the craft of meeting a plant. Yeah. And there's a certain kind of respect in paying that kind of attention of what actually does this look like when you first come to a, a patch of plants that you've never met before. It's like, oh, there's, 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 there's plants, <laughs> there's, there's hedge, there's green. And then as you get to know them, it's like, oh, there's, there's this and that and that. And you start to see them as, as different things. So that respect of, of the precision and looking and investigating and applying your kind of linear mind that's a whole way of approaching the plant which i think has some manners to it some etiquette but the other side of it that i suppose um much better at is certainly the the way i'm approaching it with language is to um is to kind of fall in love with the plant and kind of court it in a way and i i i'm thinking I do this more with trees, to be honest, than I do with smaller plants. But I regularly fall in love with a particular tree. And the process of of getting to know that tree and building up a relationship with it is not necessarily a quick one. Yeah, It means returning to that tree again and again, sleeping under it, dreaming under it. When I go out to the moor, I often fall asleep on the moor when I'm out there. And those little encounters with the other world through dreaming in a particular place i put quite a lot of value on sing songs to your plant compose love poetry to it allow yourself to get soppy with with the plant and see what it does back how does it how, how is it how, how does it respond to your advances yeah in a way i suppose love is my my primary um it's not an emotion but kind of way of being with the natural world and and reverence and curiosity so this thing of just inviting this being to tell you a bit about what it is and whether it's speaking on behalf of the whole nettle nation or whether it's just you know out there on a limb with its theories about stuff or whatever in a kind of way, it's the same as how I build up a relationship with the story, with the entity of a story. It takes time. You need to build familiarity 
and trust. Some of this stuff is really, really subtle and isn't stuff that you get from going out on an afternoon workshop. You go out and you go past that patch of burdock for a year. Doing that every day, you start to notice that something's going on. I do think a year is the barest minimum Mm -hmm. of becoming intimate with place your place and and i think lockdown has i know i know so much many people are really finding it hard Mm. um, not only materially but also emotionally but it it has also you know every every crisis has a positive to it and if there's one positive for lockdown and i keep hearing it from many people it's that becoming intimate with our location where we Mm. are now Mm -hmm. very intimate with it i've had discussions with people where they're just seeing aspects of the land that they've never noticed before Mm. and their relationship with the land has shifted and it's like i've got to get out every day and okay that's partly because you're told you've got to stay indoors but I think it goes beyond that. I think people are getting plugged into to the crackle of where they live. So I was just going to say in a similar way to the wilderness fast where you're, you have food and company and shelter taken away from you. So you, where you go for sustenance, where you put your root down to is into the earth, basically on a, on a subtle level, because that's the only available source of sustenance. And in the same way with lockdown, if you impose a set of limitations, Um, on a living being it has to find nourishment from somewhere yeah Uh, and the wilds whether they're big wilds or little wilds um, are just you know endless source of nourishment that's what they do that's what what it is so we're coming to the end of our time having a chat and i just want to ask you about this sentence i found on your website i saw that you had extinction rebellion logo symbol on your instagram account but i want to just put these words to you and and just see what you respond i don't even know if you remember reading writing them i have heard all the terrible news and have looked into the inferno of the future but i am still in love with life that's the truth that's the truth. I mean, I, I I wrote that recently, actually. I I um, for one reason and another, the last couple of years have been tough years, as we were talking about before the recording. Yeah. I finally managed to get uh, a bit of time to myself in September this year to go up and camp on the moor for a week. You know that every so often uh, you get exactly the medicine that you need at any particular time. And that week was that that thing for me, and it was just right. And I came down uh, from the moor feeling as large as my actual self was. I came down feeling like a giant off the moor into Ashburton. And yeah. <laughs> came, came down in my full wet weather gear, stinking despite all my river swimming, and uh, <laughs> down in Ashburton. Having been in thick fog and rain up on the moor, I came down and it was shirts and 
shorts and t-shirt weather in Ashburton. I was so full of full of life force again mm. after having kind of been been kind of uh knocked down for for quite a while um just by life being being pretty hard and uh i took a, a photograph of myself just before i came down off the moor and those were the words that that went with that photograph mm -hmm. i think about hope and despair a lot having been involved in kind of various endeavors to either look at climate chaos or just the rampaging excesses of industrial civilization or whatever. We are at a particular and peculiar and devastating moment in our human history. One of the challenges for me in all of that has been, how do we go on? In a way, not not how do we go on, but how how do we not be crushed internally in some way that kind of deadens our aliveness by the, the, the possible probable futures that we're facing that our children are, fa are facing. This is a big subject. I could talk about this for a really long time, and I'd love to talk with you about it because um, yeah. I think we have interesting things to talk about. Um, this notion of hope as being something separate from optimism as not being the same as optimism because i'm not optimistic about the future yeah. but hope is something else and it over the last five or ten years i've come to the conclusion for myself that hope is something far more akin to love that lives in your heart and gives you aliveness and is not dependent on your circumstances when you give up that particular hope which is really being in love with life, no matter what, then something essential in your spirit begins to die. Whereas you can be as pessimistic as you like about the future and that won't necessarily kill that essential thing. Yeah. That's kind of where that was coming from. But also just to touch on this very briefly, we were talking about mental health before we, we started and between the ages of about 12 and 22, 23, I had pretty severe form of depression. It's a bit like bipolar, not quite. And I was absolutely sure that I would not live beyond to the age of 30. That was wow. pretty clear for me. And so every so often I reflect on that and I remember that time and my certainty that I would not live very long. And the, the realization I had when I reached my late 20s and 30s that I could so easily have died you know, uh -huh. by, by suicide, but that I didn't. And that anything that came after that time was basically some free gift that I'd been given. And whilst that's a clever way of looking at it to kind of, you know, make yourself feel buoyant it's also true and it is how i've approached the world ever since on some level and in my better moments which is that on another stream i died back there and i'm a ghost moving in this world so my job is to be in service to that life force that 
is the difference between me having died back then and me staying alive. That hope, that kind of endless wellspring of goodness that isn't isn't moral goodness, but is just the, the wonder of it all. And so I do my best to do that with varying degrees of success. And in my better writing, I hope that some of that comes through as well as the crackle of the wild, because to me, the two go absolutely and completely hand in hand or paw in paw or creeper in creeper. They're intrinsically linked. Really delightful to have you on. You and Rima have always been on the periphery of my kind of, I don't know, you you carry something into the world. That's why you're on the show. So for people who want to, and I really, 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 you know, I don't normally go, oh, you've got to go to this person's website and buy everything they offer. But you do everything so beautifully and all hand built and it's so obvious there's oodles of love being put into everything you do where can people find out about you i do still have websites and, and all that kind of thing so there's my website which is tomhirons.com h-i-r-o-n-s isn't it that's that's the one yep um but the the books you can and Rima's artwork so a lot of the beauty of of what we do um and what hedge spoken the, the traveling uh storytelling theater and everything does a lot of the beauty of that is obviously down to rima as well yeah. my partner who's this incredible artist um and her her fine navigational sense towards the the beauty of things so her prints and these books and all kinds of other stuff we publish on a website so hedgespokenpress.com hedge as in hedge spoken as in spoken um hedgespokenpress.com you can find all of that kind of stuff there as well and links to all the other things we do but it's been lovely really lovely chatting with you robin thank you so much for having me on likewise many thanks tom mm-hmm.